You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Let's start back, okay? This, uh, some of, a lot of what we're doing in today's class will, will touch on and take us back to some things that we, in, uh, in a lot of ways, have already covered. Hopefully, we're going to go uh, more expansive and deeper in some of these areas, right? So, we talked about the story of the Torah. Um, the central story of the Torah is this story. So, my hope is, in telling the story, we'll flesh it out a little bit more, uh, give a little bit more background and context, and, and hopefully bring it alive a little bit more. A lot of what we're talking about tonight has to do with uh, prayer and ritual. We had a class on uh, uh, on prayer a, a couple of weeks ago. Hopefully um, it will draw, this this what learning will draw on some of uh, what, what you did in, in that session. We had a class on uh, Jewish holidays, the wheel of the Jewish year, um, and uh, and hopefully this class will... Um, will, will um, uh, color and, and shape uh, some of what you learned in, in that class as well. Yeah. Uh, the, que- the question is, did Jesus know he was Jewish? Mm. Um, okay, so it's not exactly a Passover question, but uh, I'll put it in the uh, last questions. supper part. Right? Did did Jesus know he was a Jew? Um, reading, I'm not a Jesus expert. I'll just answer that one quickly. Um, I'm not a, uh, a Jesus expert. But it seems to me from reading the Gospels that Jesus definitely knew he was a Jew. Um, that everybody around him knew that Jesus was a Jew because basically everybody in the society except for Roman soldiers were Jews. So, uh, or, and Samaritans, I guess, but Jesus wasn't a Samaritan. So. Um, maybe he was. Um, okay. So the opening story of the Torah is Genesis. Right? And Genesis ends up focusing on uh, one family in particular, the family of Abraham. And Abraham has uh, two sons, um, Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, Ishmael goes on to become the uh, father of uh, many nations, including um, uh, the, um, according to the Torah, um, and in uh, uh, Muslim lore as well, um, the Arab nations and, and Muslim people. Um, although the Torah doesn't use the word uh, uh, Islam because the Torah was written before there was such a thing as Islam. Um, Isaac has, uh, marries a woman named Rebecca and has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Um, that's actually the, the part of the Torah we're in right now is the saga of uh, Jacob and uh, Esau um, who have a, uh, um, to say the least, uh, contentious relationship. Um, uh, Jacob is the twins. Jacob is born uh, as the younger twin, but uh, ends up um, uh, conniving his way into um, inheriting um, the birthright that uh, in ancient society would have been due to the older sibling. Um, and the birthright of being uh, Isaac's firstborn would be um, who was going to go on to uh, carry forward as the uh, as the next patriarch of uh, this fledgling uh, Jewish people. Um, Esau ends up being uh, the, the, the father of many peoples himself in his own right. Um, among them, uh, according to uh, uh, the Bible, the Edomites, um, and uh, according to the rabbis, the Edomites um, uh, become the progenitors of, uh, of the Romans as well. Um, 
But Jacob is who we want to focus on. Jacob uh, ends up having 12 sons and at least one daughter that we're told about in the, in, in the Torah. Um, and uh, the 12 sons um, become known in the, in, in the Bible as B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. Um, so-called because Jacob uh, has his name changed to Israel after uh, wrestling with a mysterious being um, who uh, uh, most biblical commentators assume to be an angel. And uh, um, during the course of the struggle, um, uh, Jacob says, I will not let you go to the angel until you bless me. And the angel says to him, um, um, your name will no longer be Jacob, which means the ankle grabber. Uh, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, Yisrael, um, which in that etymology is taken to mean the person who struggles with beings human and divine. Um, so the context, the issue uh, of what it means to be an Israelite placed there is, uh, is someone who struggles with people and with God. It's an interesting concept when you think about it, although there are other etymologies given elsewhere in the Torah about where the term Israel comes from. Um, another take on it is uh, one who is upright with God. Um, that's a little bit of an aside, but Jacob's children are known as Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel. And uh, as I mentioned, there are 12 of them, 12 sons at least, and in the ancient world, um, it is primarily the sons that we're concerned with as the heirs of the tradition of the, of, of the father. So, whereas Jacob becomes the uh, sole heir of Isaac, Jacob's sons divide his uh, legacy among them, becoming the children of Israel, the progenitors of 12 tribes of Israel. Um, eventually, as we learned in, in, uh, in our talk about uh, um, ancient Jewish history, um, eventually, the only remaining tribes of Israel are the tribes of Levi and the tribes of Judah, um, which is where the term Jew comes from. But that's much further down the road. In this period of ancient history, we're talking about, you know, give or take um, uh, um, 1500 BCE. Um, uh, this is the family tree that we're talking about. Okay, and so Jacob has 12 sons, and... Um, much like their grandparents and great-grandparents, um, the sons aren't uh, so great at getting along with each other. Um, and much like uh, Jacob's parents and uh, grandparents, um, Jacob has a tendency to uh, favor some sons over the others. One of the reasons he favors some sons over the others is that the sons are born to four different mothers. Um, there are two primary mothers, Leah and Rachel, and two, um, let's call them concubines, two um, uh, maidservants of Leah and Rachel um, that, uh, that bore sons for Jacob, or better considered um, uh, full-fledged sons of Jacob, and in that um, constellation of the children of Israel. Um, so Jacob has four wives, uh, giving birth to 12 different sons. The two favorite wives are Leah and Rachel, and of Leah and Rachel, the most favorite is which one? Rachel. Rachel. Good. So, backing up a minute, when Jacob runs away from home, after stealing the birthright from his brother Esau, he runs to his uncle's house, his uncle's name is Lavan, um, in Mesopotamia, um, meets there Lavan's daughter. This is a time where it was uh, very common for cousins to marry each other, um, different uh, different ethics. Um, although, I, I just, I, mean, I have to give this as an aside, I saw 
You can see it on Huffington Post, um, uh, a video of a bar mitzvah kid that uses the story of Jacob marrying his cousin Rachel um, and Leah, who were sisters, um, as uh, as evidence that uh, that the, what we call traditional marriage isn't really so traditional, um, and that uh, the definition of marriage has changed quite a bit over time, um, and uh, there's no reason to um, assume that the definition of marriage can't continue to change. Um, I thought that was a pretty uh, neat argument uh, that that uh, you know twelve year old made, thirteen year old made. Um, but anyway, so that's who Jacob marries. He uh, falls in love with Rachel, um, but at the last minute before he marries her, he's tricked by his uncle into marrying uh, Rachel's older sister Leah. Okay, he ends up marrying Leah. They have uh, many children together. Rachel, it turns out, after. Uh, uh, He's allowed to marry, but has to work for his uncle Levon for seven more years in order to marry Rachel. He'd already worked for seven years in order to marry her the first time. That didn't happen. He married Leah. Now he has to work for seven more years in order to marry Rachel again. He, he does it. He's there for 14 years, marries Rachel. Rachel is barren, uh, unable to have kids as following a pattern that, uh, that, that you see through all the patriarchs in, in Genesis. Uh, Sarah is at first unable to have children. Uh, Rebecca is at first unable to have children. Um, and now Rachel is uh, unable to have children. It's an interesting motif. You could spend a lot of time thinking about that uh, motif. Um, eventually, uh, God answers the prayers of Jacob and Rachel and provides Rachel with a son. One son named Joseph. Um, Joseph is an interesting name, by the way. The name Yosef. Anybody know what Yosef means in Hebrew? It's the same root as uh, the word Musaf. Did you guys learn about Musaf with uh, with with the Chazan? What is did, she, did you guys say what Musaf meant? Extra, very good, extra. Musaf means extra, which is uh, you know it's, it's a bonus service, right? So Yosef is the same root, which means more, extra. And uh, Rachel names him Joseph, Yosef, because she says that's nice. I want more kids, right? Um, you know, whatever. Uh, We'll get to it in a second. What she names her second son is even more interesting. But uh, um, so they have a son, Joseph, after many years of trying unsuccessfully to have a, a child. Joseph um, is uh, at that moment the youngest of 11 children. Right? And Joseph is then the only son born to Jacob's favorite wife um, after many years of unsuccessfully trying to have a son. So one can imagine putting oneself into Jacob's mindset, not necessarily sympathizing with him, but just kind of understanding where he is, that Joseph is extra special to Jacob. And Jacob makes it known to all of his sons, whether intentionally or unintentionally, makes it known to all of his sons that Joseph is the favorite son. Um, giving him uh, 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 lavishing gifts on him, uh, among them uh, the, an amazing Technicolor dream coat. Right, so you've, you've heard the you've heard the song. So um, Joseph, uh, for what it's worth, is not particularly uh, humble about uh, the fact that his father lavishes love on him uh, above and beyond his brothers, and uh, quickly makes himself uh, not his brother's favorite brother uh, by flaunting the fact that Jacob seems to favor him. And uh, Joseph is, as it turns out, is um, uh, apparently a. Uh, 
a, a dreamer of sorts. He's, uh, he's, he's one of these people that uh, not only, you know, acutely remembers the dreams that he has, um, but ascribes them significance um, and uh, wants to share his dreams with his brothers. And so we learn about a couple of dreams that uh, uh, Joseph has, um, among them um, that he sees um, uh, uh, 12 sheaves of grain um, uh, bowing down to uh, him who is a, a sheaf of grain. And then he dreams another dream. He tells his brothers that dream, and uh, the brothers understandably get mad because they read the subtext of the dream, which is, um, you're this big, you know, uh, um, smart, beautiful sheaf of grain, and you're, you're thinking that we're all going to bow down to you. Um, he has another dream where he uh, dreams that uh, he is uh, the sun, and uh, his father is the moon, and all of his brothers are stars, and the, and the moon and the stars are bowing down to the sun. And he tells his brother and his father this dream, um, and the brother, brothers and the father um, understandably are not particularly happy about this dream. Yeah, question. I was going to ask you, was polygamy common in the early days? Uh, if you if you take the Torah's account as um, indicative of what was going on in the ancient world, then yes. Um, uh, uh, marriage was um, a different sort of institution than it is today. Um, it was not... Uh, um, generally understood to be a partnership between equals, but um, more like the acquisition of uh, fruitful property. Um, so um, 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 that was uh, that was then. Um, uh, Judy, for as an aside, um, Judaism formally stopped uh, allowing polygamy in the um, 10th century, um, but was probably by practice not engaged in polygamy for long before that. Um, so there was a ban by a rabbi named uh, Rabbeinu Gershom, uh, the light of the exile, who lived in uh, um, uh, Germany in the uh, 10th century, um, that formalized the, 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 the edict that said you can't marry more than, a man can't marry more than one woman. It was always the case, even according to the Bible, that a woman could not marry more than one man at a time. But uh, men could marry more, more than one woman. So it was more... Polygamy uh, suggests that uh, that either partner is able to marry multiple people. There's more like polygyny. So uh, a man is able to marry more than one woman, but a woman's not able to marry more than one man. But anyway, formally that ended in the 10th century, uh, but, uh, but, but in practice long before that, um, most historians think. Um, okay, so Joseph um, earns the... Uh, Scorn and the consternation of his brothers. He's not uh, particularly shy about the fact that he seems to be the favorite son of all of his brothers. Um, and on top of it, um, he um, he he seems to be sort of a, um, a, a the kind of person who who tries to capitalize um, and. Um, uh, manipulate the fact that he is uh, loved more than his brothers. So Joseph, um, we're told in Genesis, one day um, uh, goes to uh, spy on his uh, brothers as they're tending sheep, because that's what they uh, did back then, they were shepherds. He uh, goes to spy on his brothers who are tending sheep in order to bring bad reports of them back to their father. And uh, um, he, uh, uh, his brothers see him uh, spying on them, and they say to themselves, we've had enough with this Joseph guy. 
Um, we're, we're, we're fed up with the way, you know, with the dynamics in our family. Uh, I think we'd all be better off if we killed him. Fortunately, um, uh, cooler heads prevail, led by the eldest son, whose name was Reuven. And Reuven suggests, let's not kill him, but let's, um, let's sell him into slavery. Uh, and so they throw him into a pit. They sell him into slavery, uh, first to a, a traveling band of, uh, of uh, Midianites, um, and he ends up getting sold into slavery in Egypt. Meanwhile, Joseph's brothers uh, take Joseph's amazing Technicolor dream coats, um, slaughter a goat, pour out the blood onto the, uh, onto the uh, amazing Technicolor dream coats, bring it back to, the, to Jacob and say, uh, while we were out in the field, a wild animal came and tore apart uh, Joseph. We're sorry, but here's his coat. Right? Um, and, uh, and Jacob is um, um, uh, understandably distraught about this. Um, meanwhile, by the way, um, uh, uh, before Joseph had got to this age, Joseph uh, had a full brother, a uh, full brother named, uh, eventually named Benjamin. Um, uh, I mentioned that I was going to say what his original name was because uh, his mother, Rachel, apparently had a uh, propensity for interesting names for her children. So she, so Rachel dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. Um, and uh, just before she dies with her last breath, she names him Ben-Oni, which means uh, son of my pain. Um, uh, um, that, I, I mentioned that only really as an aside, not really as, a, as something that's uh, particularly relevant to the story, just, as, just uh, to, to give flavor. Um, but it also goes to show you why Joseph was um, uh, all the more special to Jacob, right? Because not only is he um, the son born to his favorite wife for whom they had waited a long time uh, to, to give birth to, but she also is dead by this time. So Joseph is sold to slavery, his, presented to his father as, uh, as if he has died, uh, and life more or less um, goes on tragically, sadly, for Jacob and his family. The story as we see it shifts to Joseph's saga in Egypt. And Joseph's saga in Egypt is um, uh, one of the most um, novelistic episodes in the entire Torah. So Joseph is sold to slavery in Egypt. Um, Egypt at the time um, is, uh, is one of two great powers in, in the world. Um, the other one being uh, um, Babylonia, Assyria. Um, and so you see several times in the course of uh, the narratives of Genesis... Um, Egypt being a place of refuge for um, for the patriarchs. Abraham, for example, when there's a famine in the land of Israel, goes down to Egypt because Egypt is a much uh, much more wealthy, much stronger, much more prosperous country. And when there is famine in your land, you go to where when there's famine in Mexico, you go to the United States, right? So that's what Egypt was uh, at at the time. Um, so Joseph is sold into slavery into that society. He's sold to an aristocrat in uh, in Egypt named Potiphar. Uh, and as uh, the uh, servant of Potiphar, he actually grows to be um, a pretty prominent uh, servant, uh, as such as servants go in, in Egypt. But Joseph, 
as uh, um, uh, one of the reasons he was so beloved by his father and so hated by his brothers is that he was uh, apparently a, a very handsome guy, a very strapping young man. Um, and he quickly caught the eye of Mrs. Potiphar. Um, and uh, Mrs. Potiphar, uh, we are told, uh, uh, frequently when uh, Mr. Potiphar was out of the house, would make advances on our hero Joseph. Um, and Joseph, being the uh, saintly, upright Jew that he was, um, continually refused her advances until one day she made an advance on him uh, and he refused. And uh, angered at this, she accuses Joseph of raping her or attempting to rape her um, and gets Joseph thrown in the deepest dungeon in Egypt. Stop there for a second. Any questions, comments? Okay. So while Joseph is in this uh, deep, dark dungeon, he uh, happens to meet um, two fairly prominent Egyptians who uh, got themselves thrown in jail as well. Uh, That is the uh, wine steward and the baker, chief baker of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So they meet, become friendly in uh, in prison, and uh, it so happens that uh, both the uh, wine steward and the baker uh, have dreams, very vivid dreams when they are in uh, prison, and they're you know talking while they're like hanging there in chains. That's how I envision it, like you know in Aladdin, where Aladdin's in there uh, with uh, with Jafar hanging in chains. They're hanging in chains, and the wine steward and the baker say to Joseph, um, you know, we had this strange dream last night. You know, I, 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 wonder, I, I wonder what it means. So they uh, tell their dreams to Joseph, and uh, Joseph has some good news and some bad news, but they're just talking right now. They don't know necessarily that Joseph is good at interpreting dreams. Joseph says to uh, the, um, the wine steward, your dream means that in three days, Pharaoh is going to forgive you and restore your, you to your previous position. Um, and to the baker, he says, your story is about three days as well, but your story means that, your dream means that in three days, Pharaoh is going to convict you and execute you and leave your body hanging to be food for the birds. Turns out that Joseph is right about these dreams. We have this motif of Joseph being not only a dreamer, but keenly aware of the meaning and symbolism of dreams. And so Joseph says to the wine steward, who's very grateful for this great news that Joseph gave him, the wine steward says to Joseph, what's your, you know, what, what favor can I grant you for this kindness that you've done to me? And Joseph says, all I want you to do is remember me to Pharaoh. So the wine steward gets let out of jail, doesn't remember Joseph to Pharaoh. Doesn't bring Joseph up at all. Many months go by, and eventually, Pharaoh has some strange dreams that he can't interpret. And none of his advisors, none of his courtiers are able to interpret these dreams. In one dream, there are seven weak parched sheaves of grain that are, uh, that, that emerge to swallow seven healthy, beautiful sheaves of grain. And then he has another dream. That seven beautiful, healthy, robust cows are grazing in a field, and seven sickly, skeletal cows emerge and swallow these healthy cows whole. Can't interpret it at all. 
the fact that he can't interpret it is uh, kind of surprising, considering it seems like a very obvious uh, <laughs> metaphor, um, which, is, which is one of the uh, reasons that th these are probably stylized stories. I'm not sure this, this is exactly how Joseph's story happened. But in any event, these are the stories that we're told that Pharaoh has. Um, and nobody can interpret these stories. Pharaoh can't interpret them. Nobody can interpret them. And finally, the wine steward remembers, I know a guy who was pretty good at interpreting stories when I was in prison. Why don't you go and ask this uh, prisoner to interpret your story? So Pharaoh calls Joseph up. Joseph interprets the dreams in a way that seems to satisfy Pharaoh's curiosity. Joseph says that the dreams both mean the same thing, where right? you dreamt two dreams about the same thing, and the dreams mean that Egypt is about to experience seven years of plenty, and they're going to be subsumed by seven years of famine that are going to be so severe that they're going to make everybody forget that there was ever such a thing as the seven years of plenty. And the point of the dream is prophetic. It's telling you, Pharaoh, that you have an opportunity during these seven years of plenty to store enough grain so that when the seven years of famine hits, your people don't starve to death and your empire doesn't crumble. So Pharaoh is pleased with the uh, um, with the uh, interpretation that Joseph gives. Joseph um, uh, is uh, um, promoted to um, the head of Pharaoh's uh, grain initiative during the seven years of plenty. Um, he becomes he oversees the entire food program, storing the grain, and then when the seven years of famine hit, uh, divvying out the grain. Um, so an interesting sort of um, uh, detail that some, someone gets glossed over in the course of the narrative um, that, uh, that Joseph's task is essentially to confiscate all Egyptian private property. Um, so he, he confiscates everybody's field because we're going to take all of your grain and we're going to store it and we're going to um, uh, parcel out what you need for these seven years so that we're going to be able to divvy up um, what's, uh, what's available for the next seven years. Joseph does such a good job with this that he becomes uh, promoted to be uh, the um, Pharaoh's chief advisor, uh, the grand vizier, right? The, basically the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. He gets an Egyptian name. He gets an Egyptian uh, wardrobe. He gets an Egyptian wife. And he has two beautiful Egyptian children named Ephraim and Menashe. Meanwhile, this is uh, a major famine striking the most wealthy and powerful uh, nation in the, in the world at the time, which means that it is inevitable that it's going to spill out into the geographic proximity of Egypt. And that's exactly what happens. The famine hits uh, the land of Israel in addition to uh, other surrounding nations. The famine hits the land of Israel, and it's a devastating famine. Jacob and his sons have no food. So they do what Jacob's father and grandfather did in times where there was a famine in the land of Israel. said, the only way we're going to be able to have food is to go to where the food is, which is in Egypt. They managed to devise a system that's going to get them through this famine. So Jacob empowers his sons, except for Benjamin, who he doesn't want to leave his side, empowers uh, that means he leaves 10 of his sons, if you're keeping count. He empowers 10 of his sons to take a trip down to Egypt to go and get food to bring back to the land of Israel. They go down to Egypt. 
They make their way to the capital city, and they meet the person in charge of Egypt's food program. Who is? Joseph. Now, Joseph easily recognizes his brothers. But Joseph looks like an Egyptian prince, so his brothers don't recognize him. So Joseph decides to get a little bit of revenge on his brothers. It's a little bit ambiguous from the text about what exactly Joseph's motivations are here, whether it's to get revenge or whether it's a, a plot in order to get all of his brothers and his whole family to come down to Egypt. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Sometimes people have mixed motivations. But in any event, he accuses the brothers of being spies. And he asks them for proof that they're actually not spies. Say, the only way we can prove to you that we're not spies is that the story that we're telling you, that we are brothers from the land of Israel, and we came down, we have another young brother at home, and an old father at home, they're waiting for food. That's the story we have, that's the story we're sticking to, that's the only way we can prove we're not spies. And so Joseph says, okay, if you go back and bring me your youngest brother, then I'll believe that you're not spies, and I won't kill you. So, that's what they do. Two, two brothers volunteer to stay in Egyptian prison while the other brothers go back to the land of Israel and get Benjamin. Um, they have to re- convince a reluctant Jacob to let Benjamin go because if you remember back to the beginning of the story, um, Benjamin is now the only surviving son in Jacob's mind of his beloved wife, Rachel. He doesn't want to let Jacob go on this peril- Benjamin go on this perilous journey. Eventually, relents because his other sons are now in prison in Egypt. So they bring Benjamin down, and Joseph tells them that he believes that they're not spies. So he gives them their grain and sends them on their way. But as they're going, he slips a silver cup into Benjamin's grain bag. And as the brothers are on their way back to the land of Israel, Joseph and his guards assault them on the way and say, someone stole a silver goblet from my uh, palace, um, and I think it was one of you. And they all say, we, we swear it wasn't any of us. So he searches all of their bags, and lo and behold, he finds the uh, goblet in uh, Benjamin's bag. So he arrests Benjamin um, and, uh, and, and uh, um, uh, threatens the most severe punishments possible for Benjamin. Now, Here, I think, is what Joseph is ultimately trying to see. Whether the brothers would um, throw Benjamin under the bus or not, whether the brothers had learned anything from the ordeal, whether the brothers had grown at all over the course of time. And um, the brothers, led by Judah, and so in part this is a story about uh, the the, the greatness of Judah uh, because the story was probably written by somebody who was uh, from the tribe of Judah. Judah um, leads the brothers in coming to argue on Benjamin's behalf and in order to uh, say, take me instead of Benjamin because otherwise it would kill my father. Joseph is so moved by this act of selflessness Um, on the part of the brothers to try to save Benjamin, that he ends up revealing himself to the brothers as their long-lost brother Joseph. They have a tearful and forgiving reunion. Um, And Joseph invites 
all of the brothers to go back to the land of Israel, bring Jacob and the whole Gansa Mishpacha down to live in Egypt because it's a great place to live. There's food aplenty. You'll live like royalty. It's going to be great. So they go back. They get everybody to come back down to Egypt. Jacob and all of the children of Israel come to live in Egypt. They're treated like royalty by, by Pharaoh as being uh, the, the relatives of Joseph. Um, they're given the most uh, uh, ample area of Egypt to live in, the land of Goshen, um, which is in the Nile Delta region, um, and, uh, and, and are, are really treated uh, like, uh, um, like, like welcome guests, like visiting dignitaries uh, living um, in, in the land of Egypt. Jacob and his 12 children um, grow to a family of, um, of 70, and then within a generation or two, a few hundred, and a few thousand ultimately. Jacob dies. Joseph and his brothers die. The children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Jacob's 12 sons, um, uh, are a foreign population um, living somewhat comfortably and somewhat prosperously in the land of Egypt. Until a new king arises in Egypt, who, according to the book of Exodus, does not remember Joseph. We don't know exactly what that means. Some commentators say that he conveniently forgot Joseph, right? He doesn't like the fact that there's this foreign population. He's trying to exert control and influence and power. He sees an opportunity to exploit a minority for his own gain. So he conveniently forgets Joseph and the history of Joseph. And other commentators say, no, the text means literally he's a new king. It's several generations later. He wasn't the student of history. Um, it's easy to kind of forget things that are not in living historical memory, um, which is one of the, uh, as an aside, one of the um, uh, great risks that we have um, once, uh, God forbid, the last uh, uh, living survivor of the Holocaust uh, dies and, and they're, they're getting old, is what happens when um, the living memory of, uh, of, of uh, something significant in history no longer exists, what happens to that memory, um, how it can be twisted and manipulated and misunderstood and forgotten altogether. So this new king arises and doesn't know or doesn't remember Joseph. But all he sees is this growing population of foreigners living in Egypt. And he becomes worried that perhaps this large group of foreigners might become large and powerful and join with the enemies of Egypt and fight against Egypt. Or somehow bring Egypt down from the inside. It's a classic uh, uh, story of um, of of, of um, a somewhat irrational fear of the other in one's midst, right? Um, of, uh, of, of, of disdain of, uh, of, of a foreigner immigrant population, a scapegoating of an immigrant population, uh, uh, or maybe a, a real fear of what an immigrant population is capable of. Pharaoh doesn't like this group of Israelites, this group of Hebrews living in Egypt. And so he hatches a plot to um, uh, to prevent their uh, population growth and to um, and to exert control over them, and so Pharaoh makes them slaves. 
He imposes forced labor on them and imposes taskmasters on them. Um, you know, the, the story itself is, uh, is, is, uh, a little bit more complex than, um, uh, than, than a, a cursory read, um, uh, suggests because the language of, um, of, uh, that, that's often translated as taskmasters might also be, uh, understood as a tax. So he gave them a heavy taxation. But let's go with the classic understanding of the story that Pharaoh imposed taskmasters on the Egyptians and made them uh, uh, forced laborers for the regime. The entire population forced laborers for the regime. The plan doesn't work. And despite the crushing forced labor that Pharaoh places on the Israelites, they continue to uh, prosper and flourish and, uh, and, and, and grow and multiply. So Pharaoh doubles down on his fear, and he instructs uh, the midwives in Egypt to, uh, uh, when they're giving, helping the Israelite women, the Hebrew women, give birth to, uh, uh, to their children, uh, that any time they see a baby boy, to kill it. We have then... Uh, at least in uh, Exodus, um, uh, the first recorded act of civil disobedience. Two midwives, at least, uh, that the Torah identifies, Shifra and Pua, um, uh, directly disobey uh, the explicit order of Pharaoh and refuse to kill the Israelite baby boys when they're born on the birth stool. One thing that as you... Um, uh, experience Passover and, uh, and, and, and read the story of the Exodus, and I wonder if it gets um, uh, capitalized on in the, uh, in, in the coming movie. It doesn't so much in uh, the Ten Commandments, but it kind of does in the animated Prince of Egypt, is the role um, that, uh, that women uniquely play in this drama. Um, the, the first act of civil disobedience recorded in the Bible is uh, the midwives' disobedience of Pharaoh. Right? And there are um, uh, acts of uh, civil disobedience throughout the story of Exodus, uh, most of which are carried out by women. It's an amazing um, uh, um, ancient story of the power of strong women. Um, the midwives disobey Pharaoh. They let the um, uh, baby boys live. And so Pharaoh instructs all Egyptians, whenever they see a baby boy born to a, a Hebrew woman, um, that they are all empowered to, uh, to, to kill all of the baby boys of, uh, um, of, of the uh, Hebrew servants. It's a, it's, it's a horrible and crushing decree, but according to the Torah, it doesn't work that the uh, Israelites continue to multiply and flourish and prosper um, and, uh, and, and grow. And so having none of the plans meet their objectives, Pharaoh imposes um, even more crushing labor on the Israelites. The Israelites start to buckle and break and groan and cry under their labor. Um, and finally, we are told, God hears the cries of the Israelites and decides it's time to do something about it. Now, just an interesting aside um, of this story, um, and, you know, one of the um, things that I, I'm, I'm hoping to do with all of us is, is just kind of, um, you know, this is just a taste of, 
um, uh, uh, to, to whet your appetite for more learning. And so uh, I want to show you, you know, different resources. And one of uh, the, the best contemporary Passover resources um, that, uh, that, that I've seen is this new Haggadah. Haggadah is um, the, um, the prayer book, basically, um, of, uh, of, of the Seder. Um, so this is a new Haggadah that was put out a couple of years ago, edited by uh, Jonathan Safran Foer, um, and um, with uh, commentary by um, a handful of really wonderful contemporary writers. Um, uh, and this was really, I think, intended to be written for uh, a broad audience. You know, it's so much that you know, one of the authors that uh, has a running commentary in here is Lemony Snicket. Um, and it's it's great um, that one in particular, um, but uh, um, but so we um, so there's a there's an essay in here I just want to share it with you. Um. <clears throat> so you have this account in Exodus where um, God hears the voices of the oppressed Israelites and remembers the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and decides then to do something about um, Israelite slavery. Now, what's, what's odd about that? God that God seems to have forgotten, right? Um, yeah. He was in reverse, no? Say it again? He was in reverse. So people, people, people have forgotten God. Hmm. So that's one way of looking at it, right? That the, that the people actually never cried to God, right? And only in that one moment, that was the first time in several hundred years that they cried out to God um, because they had forgotten God. And then God uh, took note of them because they had reached out to God. God never forgot, but uh, but God needed them to take a step toward their own redemption. That's definitely a way of looking at it. Um, so I just love this. So the first um, uh, commentary about this is, this is Lemony Snicket, Okay. God, who supposedly knows everything, needs to be reminded of a promise he made with our ancestors. This is disconcerting, a word which here means cause for much argument among rabbis and peasants alike, but not surprising. All of us have forgotten about promises we have made, even promises that are very important to us and that are still very important to the people to whom we've promised them. These people may be wailing right this very minute, hoping that we remember whatever it is that we promised, Perhaps we promised to help them with something, and then the task was so dull that we put it aside. Perhaps we promised to be kind to them, and then we became interested in other people instead. Or perhaps we simply promised to keep thinking about them, but we have forgotten about these people until this very moment. Because it's so much more interesting to think about ourselves and our own problems. It's entirely, pos excuse me, it's entirely possible that God, too, would rather think of himself and his own problems. When we suspect this to be the case, Jewish tradition encourages us to wail, often in Hebrew. But we might also stop wailing for a moment and listen instead. We might think of promises we have made and have not kept, or promises we ought to have made but didn't. And while we're thinking of this, we might hear the wailing of others, some of whom may be trapped beneath the floors of this very room. And here's... Um, uh, um, who does Nation? That one is uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, who's a, a columnist. God forgets. A shocking idea. God chose us and then forgot us. 
Only by wailing did we remind him of our existence. But God's problem is our problem as well. We're masters of forgetting about prejudice and unfairness, wars and genocides, hunger and misery. We're busy, we're overwhelmed, we're callous. So what reminds us of injustice in the world? Wailing, (coughs) protest, complaining. Suffering in silence is not a Jewish virtue. Complaining is a Jewish virtue. Because dissatisfaction is a particularly Jewish characteristic. Sometimes we're dissatisfied by trivial matters, by issues of money and status and luxury. But one of the joys of being Jewish is membership in a group that is essentially, that is eternally dissatisfied with the way things are. We are at our core a messianic people. We dream of a better time when the entire world will make the journey from slavery to freedom. And how will this journey begin? By opening our mouths. Wherever people gather to express dissatisfaction with the way things are, on the environment, on taxes, on immigration, on civil rights and social policy and foreign policy, you will find Jews leading the fight. Often you will find Jews leading both sides of the same dispute. It was remarkable to watch the struggle over the Bush administration's decision to go to war in Iraq. Jewish advisors to Bush were key in making the case while Jews in Congress and in the media led the charge against intervention. At times, the argument took on the appearance of an intramural dispute. Throughout history, Jews have been agitators for change. Jews are disproportionately active in the politics of dozens of countries. In America, more than 10% of the U.S. Senate is Jewish. Jews make up 2% of the population. And Jews register to vote and turn out to vote in much higher percentages than any other group. The question arises... Do Jews who agitate so ardently for change do so as Jews or because they are Jews? Is there something embedded in the Jewish cultural DNA, the memory of Moses' calling perhaps, that sparks a desire to change the world, or is it just coincidence? So here, you have, first of all, I just wanted to uh, share some of that with you to recommend this Haggadah if you, if you haven't seen it yet. I'll pass it around so you can take a look at it. Um, and I'll, I'll show some others over the course of the uh, evening tonight. Um, uh, but um, I, I want to offer that in addition, as, as we look at the story and think of the story, it's important to consider um, uh, how and in what ways this is really the, the central, the essential text, the, the source text for what it means and what it is to be Jewish, because that's how the Torah understands this narrative. That's how the Torah understands the story. That's why this class is called um, uh, the Jewish Master Story, because this is the foundational story of the Jewish people. Someone said that uh, Passover is the birthday of the Jewish people. Who's, uh, yeah, right? Birthday of the Jewish people, right? So it's like, you know, a lot of what we need to know about Superman is told in his origin story, right? A lot of what we need to know about Batman is told in his origin story, right? So a lot of what we need to know about what it means to be Jewish is told in our origin story. Right? And so I think that that's a beautiful interpretation of what's going on in the story because it, it brings out what does it mean to be Jewish, right? What it means to be Jewish is to, is to hear protest, hear cries and respond to it like God is doing, or it means to be the people who cry out against injustice, right? What the people of Israel are doing, right? Um, goes even more, right? So the, the story has the, the, uh, the, 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 the narrative of um, of forgiveness and reconciliation of Joseph and his brothers, right? And so part of what it means to be Jewish, 
what's at the core of this uh, aspect of, uh, of, of, of who we are is the power of repentance and forgiveness. They say that um, Passover is really the essential holiday and some of the other holidays are more ancillary. And you say back to me, well, what about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are the high holidays, right? How can those be ancillary? And I say to you, because Passover has all of the core values that are embedded in those other holidays. And the only reason we have those other holidays is because of the Passover story. Right? Okay. So let's go on a little bit more from the story. So God here, actually, let me just pause it for a second. Let me pause it for a second. So any questions so far? Comments? Okay. Um, so, God hears the cries of the oppressed Israelites and, and, uh, and, and vows to take action. Meanwhile, we hear the story of a family that uh, um, uh, uh, seems to be a prominent Israelite family. Uh, the text says that um, uh, the union is uh, the daughter of Levi. Um, who is uh, married to a man from the tribe of Levi. Levi is the third of uh, Jacob's sons. So it's a, a prominent uh, family among the Hebrews who, um, who have a baby boy at the time of Pharaoh's decree that all baby boys are to be killed. So in order to uh, save this uh, baby boy, they, uh, uh, the, the mother, in direct defiance of Pharaoh's decree, um, again, another um, uh, uh, tough chick of Exodus, right? Um, defies Pharaoh's decree, puts Moses in, or not named Moses yet, I just gave away the story, puts, uh, puts the baby in a basket, sends him down the Nile, um, and uh, sends his sister to watch to make sure that nothing bad happens to the child as he's in this basket floating down the Nile. As he's floating down uh, the Nile, he um, is... Uh, floats into uh, the area where um, the daughter of Pharaoh is uh, is uh, um, uh, bathing, and uh, she sees this basket. She opens it up and notices, and this is an answer to someone's question, did Moses know that he was a Hebrew? Um, I think embedded in the story is the answer to that question, and I think the answer to the question is at least on some level clearly yes. Because when uh, when Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby, she says, this is a Hebrew child. Okay, so she clearly knows this is a Hebrew child. Another tough chick of Exodus, Pharaoh's daughter, who directly defies her father, the king's decree, and saves this baby who she knows is a Hebrew from certain death. She takes the child in and pledges to raise it as her own. However, because she knows he's a Hebrew, she hires a midwife, uh, not a midwife, sorry, a wet nurse to uh, nurse and raise the baby with her in her palace. So it seems to me we're never really told anything about Moses' upbringing until he's actually uh, uh, reached adulthood, and that's where we, we see him again. And another uh, uh, indication in that part of the story, which I'll get to in a second, that, that might suggest that Moses knows at least in part who he is. Um, we don't really know about his upbringing in the palace, but it seems to me that at least on some level, he grows up knowing that he is not Egyptian. He might be growing up as uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's adopted son, 
But nevertheless, he knows that he's not her biological son. I think that that seems to me to be pretty clear from the story. So when you, you know, in the Ten Commandments, um, the Cecil B. DeMille, you know, version, um, which is great if you've never seen it, um, it seems to be a surprise to Moses that he is a Hebrew. In, um, in The Prince of Egypt, the animated uh, uh, cartoon, it seems to be a surprise to Moses that he is a Hebrew. Um, I think that makes for high drama, um, but it's, I, I think, not uh, borne out in, in what happens in the actual narrative in the Torah, at least the way I understand it. I could be wrong about that. There are clearly people who disagree with me. Yeah. 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 Is the one who is his wet nurse, yeah. So she was the one who uh, raised Peter, Peter she raised him. Correct. Miriam, what would you think of Pharaoh's affairs? Miriam, she was having a daughter, sister. Yeah. You know, she was asked to go and look for somebody. Right. So she brought the Abed. Right. So that, that's a, uh, an important detail of the story. When uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter sees. Uh, Miriam and uh, notices that she's a, a Hebrew looking out for this uh, baby and says, will you find us a, uh, a wet nurse from among the Hebrews to help raise the child? And Miriam, who's actually Moses' sister, says, sure, I'll go. And she gets her mother, their mother, to raise him. Questions? All right, so she names him Moses, which means drawn out of the water, Moshe, um, which is an Egyptian name. Um, yeah. Um, we're not told that Moses is circumcised. Um, uh, she did know no, he was Jewish, but think about it this way. Um, uh, these are really different ethnicities, right? Hebrew and Egyptian. Um, so chances are that they looked visibly different, right? So if, you know, if I um, see a, a, a baby um, that is, you know, born to uh, Hispanic parents, um, I, could probably, um, I could probably guess that this is a Hispanic child, right? Um, uh, even though there may be similar features to a Caucasian child, right? I, I might be able to tell. So I think that that's sort of... What's going on is not so much the circumcision, although maybe he was, although there's a story a little bit later in the text that seems to indicate that Moses is not circumcised, uh, uh, at least not at that part of the story. Um, and if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he is uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, sent away by his mother before he's eight days old. Um, so it would seem unlikely to me that he's uh, circumcised in, in, in the story. Um, but that could be. It could be why she knew he was a Hebrew. Could be. We're just not told. We're just not told. Um, okay, so she names him Moshe, uh, which uh, um, is, uh, is told to be an Egyptian word that means to draw out um, because he was drawn out of the water. <laughs>